0: Life with Philip Clark
1: on ABC Radio.
2: Here's the bloody war between Russia and Ukraine continues through a bitter winter. Although Ukraine's forces have done extraordinarily well, perhaps well above expectations, Russia is far, far from a spent force and military observers expect Russia to embark on a new offensive to overcome U- Ukraine, perhaps even renew an attack on Kiev. Yeah, even as soon as later this month. Meanwhile, President Zelensky has flown to the UK, declaring Ukraine will never surrender and that the defeat of Russia is a vital Western goal. President Zelensky appears to think that Russian defeat will include the capture or the recapture of the Donbass region and also a big bite the Crimean Peninsula. All of this, of course, as the West in effect escalates the war with promises of more hardware, including tanks and now, perhaps eh, perhaps even unthinkably, fighter aircraft. What is motivating Russia on this destructive path? What imperatives have driven Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin to embark on a type of warfare that we thought we'd not see again in Europe? Stalemate, trenches, artillery bombardments, massive artillery bombardments and seemingly senseless loss of life. Tonight, two top strategic analysts join us. To, un- to try and tease out the broader geopolitical effects of Russia's motivations for this war, particularly as to how it might impact the strategic balance in the Asia-Pacific region in this current era of tension, centred on Chinese ambitions regarding Taiwan. Paul Dib AM, is Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific. He was head of the centre from 91 to 2004, and previously Depth Secretary for Strategy and Intelligence in the Department of Defence, amongst other appointments. Seth Jones is also with us, an academic political scientist and author. Seth is Director of the International Security Program and Director of the Transnational Threats Project at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., focusing on defence strategy, military operations, force posture and irregular warfare, amongst other topics. Paul, good evening to you. Good evening. And uh, Seth Jones, good evening to you.
0: Good evening as
2: well. Great to have both of you with us. Paul, first to you, you've closely watched Russia and indeed the USSR for decades as a strategic analyst and from an intelligence perspective. You say it's folly to think that anyone can, quote, win this war. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think when you look at the red lines that Vladimir Putin has laid down and... He set lines that President Zelensky has laid down. It is very hard to see any resolution to this conflict. Let's just focus on Putin. Um, as he would say himself, once a KGB officer, always a KGB officer. I spent significant part of my life in the late 70s and early 80s helping our internal intelligence organisation with counter-espionage operations against the Soviet embassy. They were hard nuts to crack. Let's just look at what Putin says is his reasons. And let me stress very carefully, I am not agreeing with Putin's deranged view of the world, but any good intelligence officer looking at this war needs to get into the minds of the opposition. So, But very quickly, Putin basically blames four central issues for his limited military operation against Mm. Ukraine. First of all, he blames the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. He claims that the West raped and pillaged economically um, the former Soviet Union, and that um, this led to America treating Russia as a third-rate power. There are different views on that, not least the way in which Gorbachev and Yeltsin were absolutely incapable of controlling vast amounts of economic aid that Gorbachev in particular wanted. The corruption was rife very early on in that first year, 18 months. Secondly, Putin blames the expansion of NATO. There are different views about this. When push comes to shove, who actually believes that Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania, or indeed Poland, is going to attack Russia but the problem is that people like James Baker according to a a recent American book from Yale University not one inch um, is supposed to have reassured Gorbachev that with the reunification of Germany with East Germany that NATO would not expand one inch further now let me stress there are no written documents in that regard Although, according to that book, at the same time as Benko was talking to Gorbachev about the non-expansion of NATO, um, uh, my old um, boring partner and opponent, Robert Gates, who I think was deputy head of um, the National Security Council in the White House at that time in, 90, in 1990, is said to have been saying much the same thing to the last head of the KGB. The third element is even more um, contestable, and that is Putin in a 7,000 word document in the middle of last year, obviously ghost written for him, although it is said he sits himself up in isolation in the Kremlin, um, reflecting on Russian history. Putin has argued in that document, uh, and listen to this, that we Russians and Ukrainians are one people, one language, one religion. And of course, he draws on even more dubious history with regard to the creation of uh, Kiev and the Orthodox faith over a thousand years ago. Um, It is, of course, ridiculous, particularly now, to say that Ukrainians and Russians are one people. Although when you go back to when Solzhenitsyn, after his 18 years of banishment, Uh, In the United States. As he saw um, Russia disintegrating into kleptic um, oligarchs, Solzhenitsyn proclaimed he didn't care where Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania went or the Central Asian republics, but he called for, in terms of the Russian soul, the Russian motherland, the remaining Slavic countries, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. In one country so you know there's some deep dodgy history in all this and the final point is putin talks about russia as Velikaya java a great power and he actually has said before this war that russia without ukraine can never be recreated as a great power well that's one sure as hell has disappeared into the dust so that's the sort of issues that we're dealing with in this man's mind. Um, with Zelensky, we've got a different set of issues and we can perhaps address that later. Mm.
2: Yes, one of the interesting points you made in a recent talk you gave was that Ru- Russia as a country is a country with, almost without borders. What What is Russia? There's a sense of what England is or what France is or what, for that matter, what Germany is. They've got strong cultures, strong borders and historical, historically defined markers. Russia mm. doesn't have this, and it's hard to say what Russia is. That's what Putin is claiming to be the keeper of that
1: knowledge. Is he? Look, um, let me use a crude sort of um, um, uh, expression. Countries of Anglo-Saxon origin, like the United Kingdom, the country I was born in, like Australia, like New Zealand, and if I might say so with regard to our American guest, uh, the United States, uh, island countries with no real land borders that are of much concern, even for America, Canada, and Mexico, allow for a minute. Um, Russia is neither European nor Asiatic, in my view, as a, as a race or as a power. And its Western borders have always been wide open, there are no natural boundaries. Hmm. To the north, we've got the Arctic Sea, to the far east, um, three times the distance, by the way, from Sydney uh, to Perth in Australia, three times the distance is the distance from Vladivostok to Moscow. And to the south, it was only in the time of Catherine the Great and and Prince Pachonkin that the Russians went into what then Catherine the Great called Novorossiya, New Russia, open Uh, Black earth, rich soils populated only by Cossacks, warring tribes, and we forget the Ottoman Turks who occupied the Crimean Peninsula. So, you know, this issue of of lack of serious borders, particularly to the West in Europe, uh, you know, has preyed on the Russian mind. And we can go through all the old, rake over the old histories that Putin does with regard to, um, you know, the invasions of Genghis Khan, from the east out of China, occupied Russia for 250 years. Um, we had um, the Swedes in the 1700s. They were the superpower of Europe in many ways. Then, of course, we had um, Napoleon. And then finally, of course, uh, Nazi Germany. So it's not an excuse for what his views are of the NATO border, but it is to say they have a different view. And, you know, if we put this into the American context, if at the height of the Cold War, Alaska had still been owned by Russia, how would the United States have reacted to a Soviet Alaska with nuclear missiles? Mm. Well, they would have reacted.
2: It's an interesting point. Seth, What are you? what's your take on, on Putin's motivations?
0: Well, I think Paul's uh, overview is accurate. I think that's the way Putin has described it. In fact, I think one of the things... For those who were surprised at the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, Putin had telegraphed that clearly. I mean, his first paragraph of the article in July of 2021, uh, which was titled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. I mean, what's what's interesting about that is that it became mandatory meeting. The government made it mandatory reading uh, for its armed forces. uh, And the words, are straightforward i'll just quote them verbatim from the the first paragraph where putin says russians and ukrainians are one people a single whole these words are not driven by some short-term considerations or prompted by the current political context it is what i have said on numerous occasions this is putin still speaking and what i firmly believe and for those who i i think uh were surprised, and we saw many governments across Europe surprised when uh, Russian forces moved across both the Russian-Ukrainian and the russian Belarusian border in February of, of 2022. Putin was clear. He had been upset about the expansion of NATO. He'd been upset about uh, Ukraine's closer relationship with, uh, with the, the West diplomatically, economically, militarily. Um, Uh, as a former uh, official within U.S. Special Operations. Tenth Group Special Forces have been training uh, Ukrainian military. Uh, A number of other U.S., British, and others have been training Ukrainian military. Um, Even though the prospect was not close of uh, uh, Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, Mm -hmm. militarily, diplomatically, and and economically, the, the uh, closeness of the relationship was uh, was very apparent, and so I think if you if with with Putin arguing culturally, historically, and then even from a strategic depth standpoint that Ukraine was critical to Russian security, time was not on his side. Uh, the longer that he waited, uh, the closer the Russians feared and Putin feared Ukraine would become closer uh to the west and the more his border essentially and his buffer uh starts to shrink and I think from a security perspective that's the fear sitting for Moscow. Now obviously uh uh that none of that uh condones uh an outright invasion on a foreign country the brutality that the Russians have uh over the last year uh, conducted against not just uh you know military officials, but what's been tragic is to watch the Russians conduct strikes within cities and kill large numbers of uh Ukrainian civilians uh conduct human rights abuses as we saw in the withdrawal from the Kiev area so none of that condones it it's more I think it's understanding along those lines and and we should also point out the 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 irony of uh nearly one year after the invasion of what Putin has. Now, he has a closer Ukraine uh, to the West mm. with a m- much more sophisticated weapons system. He's got uh, Finland and Sweden now on the verge of becoming NATO members. Yeah. And his army in particular is in dire shape. So mm. whatever he he uh, his concerns were, he's now facing certainly a much worse position than he had hoped when he invaded.
2: Does it, President Zelensky in, in London, when he was meeting with with UK leaders Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, of course, laid down a line. He says, we cannot afford to lose this, and we're not going to. And he's saying, in essence, this to the West. You can't afford to lose this because a defeat for Ukraine is a defeat for you. You will have allowed Russia to invade a sovereign country and and succeed. Is Zelensky right here? What's What's in it for the West to be and I don't want to be alarmist about this, but effectively go to war with Russia because we're at that point, aren't we, Seth?
0: Well, we're at that point in one sense, which is this is a war right now uh, of industrial bases between uh, Mm. the Russians with help from the Iranians. Uh, We know increasingly that the Chinese have provided some assistance, including uh, with uh, some of the um, weapons systems, components, and financial aid, um, on the one hand, and on the other, uh, it is now it's essentially the Western industrial base that is yeah. providing assistance. The, the Ukrainians are fighting with javelins, with stingers, with one 55 millimeter. Uh, they'll be rolling out uh, Abrams tanks, Leopards. Um, the HIMARS have caused havoc within Russian forces. So these are Western weapon systems uh so i think in that sense this is a at least it's an industrial war between russia and a western
2: industrial base hmm. what do you th- i mean paul I, i'm not i mean i'm trying to avoid labels here but i mean effectively we are at war with russia aren't we in in, in everything but name
1: not yet we aren't and i agree with a lot of, uh, of what Seth has just had to say um The issue we've got is the two red lines that I mentioned at the outset. Mm. So Putin's red line was made very clear in the December before um, the invasion on the 24th of February, in which he got his foreign ministry to write in very formal international security language that um, Putin wants NATO led by the United States to sign an international declaration that they will never allow Ukraine to be a member of NATO. Now, we all know the United States will not and must not do that. No. Uh, When you look at Zelensky's point of view, understandably, he talks about he wants all the occupiers out of um, Ukraine, including Crimea,
2: including Crimea.
1: Well, and, uh, and Donetsk and Kherson and so on and, and Crimea and you know I can't imagine and I'd be interested in Seth's reaction to this any Putin negotiating um, uh, giving Crimea away I mean when he occupied Crimea Putin in 2014 there were huge crowds uh, in, in not just Moscow but major regional cities holding placards in Russian saying Nash Krim, our Crimea, eighty odd percent were in favour of that. Now, okay, that was before he started wasting um, young Russian males at war. It is very hard to see a negotiated solution. And by the way, do any of us imagine Putin sitting down and treating Zelensky as a as a co-equal? I don't. Hmm. What
2: do you think, Seth? Do you think there is any possibility of a negotiated solution? Because, in a sense, that can be the only solution, can't it? There can't be a defeat of Russia. Russia can't be defeated in that sense, can it?
0: Well, two things. One is I I don't think a negotiated settlement is the um, only option. In fact, I don't think it's likely in the foreseeable future because domestically, politically, um, no Ukrainian leader could Mm. give away huge chunks of their territory and stay leader. And I think the same is true on the Russian side.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, at the same time, I think as the United States faced reality in Afghanistan, the Russians faced it in the 1980s in, um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, that it is it's conceivable at some point that the Russians politically, I mean, the numbers of Russian soldiers that have died is extraordinary. That, um, that on one hand, it is possible with tens of thousands of more Russian fatalities that they politically have to consider some way of pausing the war right now because the casualties are, are high. Or on the Ukrainian side, if the West is not willing to provide the weapons systems uh, week after week, month after month, even over the course of 2023, it's going to put Ukraine in a very difficult position. So I actually don't think this is likely to end at the negotiating table. I think this is likely to end um, uh, even in some kind of frozen conflict form on the battlefield. Uh, and that's where we'll see much of this waged.
2: Hmm. Do you think that's tr- true, Paul? That I mean, I've had, talked to others who suggest that this will just go on for several years. But the cost of this war in terms of munitions already, there's talk already of you know, ammunition shortages on both sides. Mm. And and this is a real, this apparently is a real thing, that, that they simply, neither side has the munitions to continue on. And the Western Allies are, rel, are going to be reluctant to keep pouring their supplies of munitions in for the fear of their own situation, aren't they?
1: Well, they're good observations. And as Seth had said earlier on, I entirely agree, this is going to be a war of industrial basis, bases and resupply capabilities. Mm. And it's going to get tough um, even for the West and even for the Russians. It is true, however, with, you know, four times Ukraine's population and a bigger industrial base, even with Western sanctions, that in theory Russia would be able to plow on for a lot longer. But you do wonder how much longer Putin can keep mobilizing and killing young Russian males. Um, Having said that, there are some commentators in Australia, no names, no patrol, who proclaim we, meaning the West, of which Australia is a part, we must see Russia decisively defeated. Well, I don't know how you decisively defeat a country with 1,500 deployed strategic nuclear warheads and 4,000 in reserve, I just don't see that. So, you know, I mean, I mean, even Kissinger, I think, has remarked that when push comes to shove, in a post-conflict situation, however that materializes between Russia and Ukraine, somehow or other, as as bitter as it will be, we, we, the West will have to recognise that Russia is still there as a significant part of the balance of power in Europe. And I don't say that with any joy at all, by the way. But this idea that you can decisively defeat uh, a, a nuclear superpower, I think, is a, um, is a casual statement.
2: Yes, Seth, this is true. A military victory means that Russia would have to withdraw from these territories, it's not as though Ukraine can advance into uh, Ru- yes. into Russia. It's not going to advance into Russia. Russia would have to decide to militarily withdraw from the, from from Donbas, these eastern um, hmm. occupied regions, and also potentially from the Crimea. Well, the, they are simply not going to do that, are they? So there can't be a military defeat of Russia, can there?
0: Well, uh, I don't think the the only Russian option is to withdraw. They there is a possibility in we saw this in Crimea, for example, where uh, the Russian in the first phase of the Crimea of the uh, Chechen war between 1994 um, and 1996, the Russian military performed abysmally. Uh, there was outright drunkenness. Uh, the Russian military, the army in particular, had trouble conducting uh, any kind of combined arms operation. I mean, they were they were facing Chechen guerrillas. Um, they paused and then waited. Two and a half years, and then in 1999, they went at went at it for another 10 years in Chechnya. So the other option here, or another option, is for the Russians to um, push for some kind of ceasefire in area along the line of control right now or at, at some future where they do include the Donbass, where they do incu- include uh, Crimea – and I think the interesting aspect, and this goes back to how war really is first and foremost political, not military, uh, is how NATO countries are going to respond with the Russians calling for a ceasefire uh, in areas like the Donbas. You know, I think there are some senior leaders from France, for example, or Germany that may get on board with ceasefire negotiations. The reason why I think, at the end of the day, I'm I'm not convinced that is a settlement is because I don't see the Russians with a long-term scope willing to call this the end of Ukraine. They started this in 2014. It's now 2023. I don't expect they'll view this as long as Putin is there as the end. This will just uh, be a temporary ceasefire. That's that's a reasonable option without a full withdrawal.
2: Hmm. There's a lot of, of cheerleading for Ukraine in, in the West, Paul, uh, Perhaps predictably, and you often wonder how much of a real picture we're we're getting of of the Russian side. How, how do you think they're doing? Uh, and in particular, what's Russia thinking about? What's the what are, what, are, what are Russian people thinking about the war?
1: Well, we don't have a good handle on what the Russian people are thinking because Putin um, dominates all the state-run television, radio, and other forms of media. There are some indications from the um, Levada poll that um, um, citizens in private are starting to get more twitchy because of the mobilisation issue. Hmm. Um, But, you know, when we're looking at Ukraine, if I might say this, and I want to say this very carefully and not to have it taken out of context, uh, you know, until recently you would have described Ukraine Um, according to one um, British expert, uh, professor of Ukrainian studies in London, Andrew Taylor, a very comprehensive 500-page book on the history of Ukraine. His initial title when he published in 2020 was The Unexpected Nation. He now calls it, you know, The Ukrainian Nation. Things have changed. Uh, We've seen, you know, in 30-odd years in Ukraine, Uh, Remembering how dominated it was by the Soviet uh, Communist Party, Mm. we've seen about five or six changes of government, including you know the Sunflower Movement in Maidan Square and so on. But we need to remind, and I I believe, and I've never been to Ukraine, they have a reasonably free media. But we know that it is a heavily corrupt society, um, um, starting off just like Russia with oligarchs and corruption. And we've seen just last week Zelensky having arrested by the public prosecutor some 14 officials, including a very senior um, defense um, acquisition official, on charges of corruption. This in the middle of a vital war for Ukraine's survival. And the final point I'd make is that, um, uh, as far as I understand it, uh, there is not an independent judiciary. The public prosecutor, so called in Ukraine, is very much like the Russian prosecutor. Indeed, I have an article written by a judge in Lvov sorry, I mispronounce it, Lviv. Um, I think he now lives in America saying that when he was a judge for five years in Lviv, it was tantamount to a criminal syndicate. Final point you know that my view is as important as Ukraine is for Europe and America. The more central issue for Australia's strategic interests is Taiwan, a a, a vital and um, uh, democracy uh, with little in the way, if any, corruption and a proper functioning judiciary.
2: Mm. Seth, can we can we talk about Taiwan? I wanted to move the conversation there because both Putin and Xi Jinping are said to have met more than thirty times in person uh, in in recent periods. Do you think they both think or have cooked up ideas that the West is is weak and at a point where a strike against Taiwan from China's point of view and Ukraine from Russia's was going to be successful? You'd least have to say that the Ukraine strike has unified the West in a way that they probably couldn't have predicted. Do you think that's what's going on with the Chinese side, Seth?
0: Well, I think um, having visited Australia and talked to senior Australian leaders just before uh, the holiday period uh, and and talking to a range of senior U.S. government officials, including on the intelligence side, I, I think we all collectively have to have a sense of humility that Chinese senior leadership, as well as the People's Liberation Army, is not a transparent organization. So I think... Uh, we certainly can come to some limited conclusions about what has been said between Putin and Xi Jinping, um, but as to how exactly the Chinese are thinking, there are huge gaps in I think what we understand but I think if you look at ukraine uh, what 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 I think uh, one could conclude is that uh, Vladimir Putin likely and we we have information um that has been collected from documents seized on the battlefield and some individuals that have been interviewed it does appear that the that when when the russians went in in february of 2022 they assessed ukrainian will to fight was limited uh, for the actually the reasons paul outlined earlier they Hmm. likely viewed their government as corrupt uh, would probably not stand and fight and that the west after the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021, Mm. um, that the the West would have very little political will to aid Ukraine. And that turns out not to have been the case in both respects, that Ukraine has been willing to fight and the West has been willing to support militarily, diplomatically and economically, including with sanctions. So I think from the Chinese perspective, they have to think very carefully about an aggressive amphibious assault on on taiwan and what that might do to to the west i mean there is it's one of the few bipartisan issues between republicans and democrats in congress right now is concern about china i mean we saw this over the last week with the balloon incident over uh over the us where there was repeated calls for that to be shot down by both republicans and Democrats. So, I, I, and just one last comment. Having reviewed recently the U.S. war plans in the 1940s during World War II for Formosa, for Taiwan, it is an extraordinarily difficult island. We just ran a series of 24 war games of a Chinese invasion. It's an extraordinarily difficult uh, island to conduct an amphibious landing particularly for a People's Liberation Army that hasn't fought since the 1970s. So you pull those things together, I would suspect that an amphibious uh, landing and an invasion of Taiwan is not the first choice for uh, the Xi Jinping government right now. Mm.
2: What do you make, Seth, of that, I think, startling prediction by Air Force General Mike Minahan, who said recently that U.S. forces will, quote, fight in 2025 over Taiwan?
1: Is that well, what, I think, is
2: that what military the military chiefs are thinking in the
0: U.S.? No, I I think that is the perspective of one individual. I don't think anyone can claim that they know a clear timeline because I don't even think the Chinese know, and I don't think it's their first preference uh, either. Uh, so I I I do think what is concerning is that the level of tension is escalating between uh, the U.S. in particular and China. We saw that with the Nancy Pelosi visit. There will almost certainly be uh, a visit by the new House uh, Speaker, Kevin McCarthy. That will almost certainly uh, trigger uh, uh, additional tensions. The balloon incident highlights the tensions on both sides. So I think what I would say is that the level of tension uh, is certainly higher than it's been uh, in the last uh, several decades. But I would say predictions of conflict between now and 2025 or even 2027, uh, too difficult to know. In fact, I think as we saw preparations during the Cold War over the Fulda Gap uh, that deterrence, both conventional and nuclear, held. And it's not inconceivable that deterrence holds over taiwan for the foreseeable future because the costs of conventional war are so high between nuclear nuclear powers if if the west gets involved
2: yeah this is a point one of the points that you've made too paul haven't you and this is that uh i'm not saying defeatism but skepticism in the in uh well not that not that concern in the west that well the chinese have a massive army, they're building aircraft carriers, they're building submarines. Y- your your point is that that may be the case, but as you say, they've not been battle-tested for decades, and also their equipment is still uh, undeniably nowhere near the level of US submarines, for example.
1: Yeah, and their ASW is poor, and they've only recently started to make high-performance jet engines after trying for 30 years, hmm. and my personal view is their submarines are noisy. Um, if I was Xi Jinping, um, uh, as Seth has said, um, they have not fired a shot in anger the Chinese since 1979. I was the deputy head of defense intelligence when that occurred, and we had the call times out a company level of artillery, um, uh, and we watched the Chinese divisions being defeated by battle-hardened North Vietnamese divisions. So what the- in, in Tiananmen Square. They've never seen battle. Hmm. They're conscripts. And what's the betting? I'm interested in Seth's reaction to this. What's the betting? That the same sort of corruption, in both in the military and in the defense industry uh, and the logistics supply lines, are, are just like the Russians. And again, as Seth has said, I'm married to, I've been to uh, Taiwan. Four times in the last eight years, when I was an official, I couldn't. In each time, i met the president, President Ma, and now President Tsai. Uh, this is a real working democracy, and we've seen how you know the, the West European democracies and America have centred on supporting Ukraine. Um, there will be the same battle cries with regard to Taiwan, and um, the support in Australia on the latest opinion polls with regard to the, the s- crucial importance of Taiwan to our overall security situation in the region uh, is, is with the Australian population. So, look, I mean, it was hard enough, you would hope, Xi Jinping observes Putin's people only had to march across a border. He will have to go across 160 kilometres of ocean. And, as again, Seth has said, when you look at the approaches for, um, on the western side of Taiwan, this is no trivial issue.
2: Hmm. where do you think Seth the balance of power lies between China and Russia now I mean there've been plenty of observers saying with the sanctions etc which do appear to have been have some have had some deleterious effect on 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 Russian income and supplies that the balance that China that China really does have in many ways if not Russia in its pocket it has Russia in its in its corner, taking its direction. Who's this? I mean, they're the senior partner in this so-called uh, friendship with no limits, aren't they?
0: I think there's no question right now that, that the uh, center of gravity in that relationship sits in Beijing right now. Mm-hmm. I would love to have access to the uh, signals intelligence transcripts of the conversations happening in Xi Jinping's office about Putin himself uh, and the state of the uh, Russian military, because uh the Russians appear to have both told themselves and told the Chinese uh, that their expectation was a relatively short war, not unlike the two thousand and three uh u s conventional invasion of Iraq that it would probably be a matter of weeks uh and that the population would rise up against the uh the corrupt Oligarchic government in Kyiv. Well, that turns out obviously not to have been uh, the case. The Russian military has struggled enormously. And as someone who has watched the Russian military in Syria, uh, that was primarily an air with a maritime component of the ground forces, the maneuver elements were largely Syrian units, Lebanese Hezbollah, and others. So, this is the first major Russian combined arms operation. In involving maneuver units, and they have not performed particularly well. And so I think if you look at the state of the industrial base right now within Russia, uh, Russian forces are not able to fire large numbers of precision munitions because they're out. Um, they uh, advanced technologies for those weapon systems. They no longer have access to um, Western U.S., British, and other uh, uh, microprocessors on on some of those systems, Mm -hmm. oscillators, they're now requiring uh, help from other places. We've already seen the Russians resort to um, unmanned aerial systems or drones from the Iranians, some artillery from the North Koreans, but China is the biggest supporter now. And without Chinese help, I I, I think the Russians would be in very difficult shape uh, economically, diplomatically, and militarily in the foreseeable future. So Beijing now is the adult in that relationship.
2: Yes, indeed. What There's a popular view in the West that rises up all the time we have these conversations is, well, why doesn't someone shoot Putin or why doesn't someone shoot <laughs> Xi Jinping? Uh, and we know from, I've talked to China experts in, in the past who said, look, it's wrong to think that Xi Jinping is is unchallenged. Uh, there, he's got plenty of enemies. Uh, they just don't. Uh, they aren't in positions of power influence at the, at the moment. We know from Chinese politics in the past that that can change, and uh, I don't know what the situation is with Vladimir Putin from either of you. Perhaps do you, Paul? First, uh, I mean, mm. what, what what possibility is there? Do you think that destabilisation from within could bring some of these crises to a to a conclusion? Look, as Seth has said
1: uh, about China, the same applies to Moscow um you know this current debate about if putin's overthrown uh that will be you know game set and match and we'll have some sort of hmm. democratic fellow traveler i think that's basically rubbish um the fact is just as in the cold war when the cia used to reach re- write top secret code word documents called the soviet military which i used to see uh, and the cia would say um The Soviet leadership does not fear a disarming first strike. That's what the CIA wrote in 1983 when Abel Archer was in process. And, you know, the time of the evil empire and the shooting down of Korean airliner and we badly, badly got it wrong. I think we've got Russia badly wrong again this time that we just didn't see, despite our access to incredibly good intelligence, just how woefully the Russians would perform. Now look, if Putin dies or is—I I don't believe he will be overthrown, but I could be wrong. I've been wrong before. I thought the Russians would be in Kiev in two days. I told him. Well, you weren't, so we're, you weren't we're alone in that. that you
2: weren't alone in that view, Paul. Well, I mean, the
1: chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, in closed session, said seventy-two hours. Hmm. Look, it, let's not run away with the idea if, if Putin is either dies or is overthrown, we might have some nice cuddly democrat. No, we won't. We might get somebody. Um, uh, even more fascist, frankly, you know, like Prigozhin um, or the the um, Kadyrov, the uh, the head of the Chechen movement. Um, so we shouldn't just sort of comfortably think, oh, it will all be fixed if he's overthrown. There is no such evidence. And let me repeat, we have no evidence of agents in the Kremlin. And I'd be interested to know what Seth's view is about uh, inside the Forbidden City.
2: Mm. Seth, do you have any insight on that? well i
0: I think the uh, the expectation of the planning has to be that Putin remains in power uh, that would be that would probably be the soundest way forward. I think Paul is exactly right that um, that there uh there are a range of what I would call Russian nationalists that uh, could take his place if he were to die out of illness or if he were uh to step down for some reason which which I think is unlikely um I I do think, though, that a change in uh, the Kremlin leadership would probably give someone an opportunity to change course on some issues um, because it would not be their responsibility. So if it made if 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 the Russian military uh, in that kind of a context with with a change in uh, Kremlin leadership were to say, look, we need to. Conduct a pause in Ukraine right now. We can't keep these casualties up. Uh, This was where Gorbachev came in in the mid 1980s. um, Is uh, he took a lot of advice? We now know. I've been through the declassified Politburo discussions. The Russian military said we cannot lose these. uh, They they lost 15,000 soldiers. Uh, Gorbachev did read a number of the letters from the mothers of dead Russian soldiers, and politically they could not continue uh, those kinds of losses. So the only thing I would say is if there is a change of leadership, which I think is unlikely, I think Paul is exactly right that uh, that the future of Russia will probably more be more Russian nationalism than Russian democracy. It may, in that kind of a context, it might give someone an ability because they didn't own the previous decisions, uh, an opportunity to slightly change course if hmm. um, if the, the, the military was to push hard
2: hmm. to both of you i mean not to get too for, highfalutin about this is is are either of you seeing it, this the conflicts in, in Ukraine and time potential conflict in Taiwan as a as something of a critical moment in post-war history this is the worst war we've had since 1945 in in Europe I mean, are both these conflicts, in a sense, a turning point where if either Ukraine or Taiwan are allowed to be subsumed by essentially militaristic, authoritarian, dictator-led states, that the idea of Western democracy itself might crumble? Is this what the goal of China and Russia is? do Do you see it in those terms, Paul, to you first?
1: I see China as Xi Jinping says time now is on the side of China. He remembers from his history the century of humiliation, you know, the opening wars and all that. Um, However, there is no evidence that he is a great risk taker, as Seth has articulated uh, very clearly, that the Taiwan invasion thing is an order of magnitude different from Putin in Russia. These two leaders, they have an alliance of convenience. Um, uh, they are both, you know, autocratic leaders running a one-shop, one-leader shop. Um, but the differences in economic and military size are remarkable. And it's only going to get worse as Russia is weakened in this situation. The, the, the situation that we're now in, as you know, we've got a defense strategic review. Um, before the government, the classified version, and we're expecting the unclassified one any moment. People, including myself, have said, for Australia, with a very limited-sized defence force of 60,000 people, um, this is the most serious strategic situation we face since the Second World War, when, you know, you will recall the Japanese were bombing the north of Australia and there was the Battle of the Coral Sea and Guadalcanal and all that. Um, I don't think any of us see this escalating to World War III. There There is some loose talk about, you know, use of nuclear weapons and so on. Xi Jinping, by the way, seems to have made it very clear to Vladimir Putin that he, he Xi Jinping, would not approve of a use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Putin. Hmm. Um, But I think we cannot dismiss the situation we're in. The golden days of the end of world history, you know, um, and the dominance of the the liberal capitalist movement. And do you remember economic interdependence as a force for peace and and supply chain, you know, 24-hour efficiencies being another force for stability and so on? Well, all that is shot through. And I expect that, you know, we're seeing America now turning the corner on its defence budget, um, on nuclear modernisation, which it needs to do, by the way, the way in which China is also developing its nuclear weapons, having been so slow for so long. Mm. Um, We need some discussions with our American nuclear deterrence. Mm. Um, We know that Russia still targets the joint facilities at Pine Gap Um, um, uh, with nuclear weapons, because I was told that six years ago in Moscow by a colonel general. There's nothing new about that. It was like that in the Cold War. Um, We need to have a capability to project decisive, long-range missile strikes, uh, if you like, deterrence by denial. And it will have to be, uh, we need to refocus and restructure our military away from the army, which has been our traditional You know, military power, First World War, Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, you know, um, uh, Afghanistan and to an extent Iraq. Hmm. And that will take some political valor to move army away from all that and to focus on both by maritime strike. I mean, sea and air and get ourselves a whole bunch of very accurate long range strike missiles like Tomahawk, for instance, Hmm. which has an unclassified range of 1800 kilometers. These are big issues for us, of which also the nuclear submarine and some debate about B twenty one bombers is occurring. Yeah. It's a watershed movement for us.
2: Yes, is that how you said, very briefly. limit we'll limited time left here, Seth? Would that be how you said?
0: Yes, I have. I, uh, I I see it very similar to the way Paul outlined. I, I would say, the overarching theme from the war in Ukraine is that warfare, conventional warfare if if we had forgotten uh, after years of
1: hmm.
0: counterinsurgency and counterterrorism is a horrifying experience. And that is just between a uh, Russian major power and Ukraine. If you elevate that to the war between major powers and you bring in the Americans, the Japanese, the Australians against, uh, against the Chinese, you are talking about extraordinary Ex- costs. Yeah. And so I think in that sense, we need to be moving towards a deterrent
2: capability. Sure. It's been so good to have your insights. Uh, Seth, thank you. Seth Jones uh, is Director of the International Security Program, Director at the Centre for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C. Thanks, Seth. And uh, Thank Paul, you very much. And Paul Dibb uh, is Professor of Strategic Studies at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU.
1: Thank you, Paul. My pleasure. And Seth, if next time you're in Australia, let me know and we'll get together. <laughs> All right.